Hey everybody, this is Eric Wright, the host of your podcast, and this is a really, really great episode talking about the value in business of open source. And in fact, it talks about product management. Good golly, there's actually so many incredible lessons in here, so hang tight. But before we get started, I want to make sure I give a big thanks to our fine friends and the sponsors of this episode, which include our friends over at Veeam Software. So everything you need for your data protection and disaster recovery needs, go to vee.am forward slash disco posse. They got a really good deal that they're uh, able to get you set up with. Most importantly, you can actually either just grab it on the spot or get connected with them. Let them know that you, you came from here. Uh, they're longtime friends. Uh, so whether it's your data uh, on premises, whether it's data in the cloud, whether it's virtualization, physical servers, and even your cloud native with the uh, casting solution. Very, very cool. Lots of neat stuff. So anyways, check it out. Uh, so go to their vee.am forward slash disco posse. All right. Next up, uh, I love coffee. Did I mention that? I love coffee. In fact, I love coffee so much that I bought a coffee company. So if you want to go and check out the coffee brand that's going to take over the coffee world, or at least play a major part in it, you can go to diabolicalcoffee.com. They're the sponsors uh, because, hey, I want to make sure that I share really, really neat stuff we're doing. So when you actually buy coffee through diabolicalcoffee.com, coffee, and we got really cool swag, wicked great t-shirts, they're devilishly good. Uh, proceeds from the profits do go to giving back to our community and we're going to help to create education shares and make sure that people get access to resources that they don't have today uh, so please if you want to support that go to diabolicalcoffee.com also quick shout out make sure if you want to learn how to give better software demos go check out the four-step guide to delivering extraordinary software demos you can easily find that at velocityclosing.com that's right it's a three sponsor day and with that let's jump in Emily O'Meara is going to join me for this. Emily is also a podcaster. She's a consultant. She's doing something that's really a tough nut to crack, and she's doing it well. So she has the Business of Cloud Native uh, podcast, and she's got a lot more that she's doing up around speeding the sales and finding might you know market category and, and product market fit, especially in Kubernetes and open source. So go check it out. Here's Emily O'Meara. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Emily O'Meara. I am a positioning consultant who works with companies in the cloud native ecosystem, particularly those uh, built around or related to open source projects. And you are listening to the Disco Posse podcast. This is, I love professional podcasts. They're so good at this. <laughs> and with that, uh, we want to jump right into the good stuff here. So Emily, thank you very much for, for joining. I was excited to get connected. Uh, so I can, and for folks that don't already know you, we'll get into your intro, but I, I got to give a big shout out to, uh, to Chris Saltis who uh, connected us together. And you know, Chris, such, he's so fantastic. I had such a great chat with him. And, and so he got to, you know, break the video barrier here on the podcast, which was kind of fun. Uh, and then immediately after we talked, he says, you've got to talk to Emily Omir. She's amazing. And, you know, so he, I was like, you had me at a recommendation and here we are. So Emily, if you want to introduce yourself for folks that don't already know you, and uh, we'll talk about the open source positioning challenge and, and a lot more actually. 
Yeah. So the first thing is there's there's probably a non-zero number of listeners who are like, hmm, I wonder what a positioning consultant is. <laughs> and I wonder what positioning is. So uh, let me start there. Um, most uh, people who are non-marketers might not have heard of positioning. Even marketers often have sort of a distorted idea about what positioning is. Um, some people think that positioning, some marketers, I should say, think about positioning as like a positioning statement that you that you write out and honestly is just kind of like a, an exercise that doesn't end up often being super useful. But what positioning really is, is about creating the correct assumptions in the mind of everybody. So ultimately, the most important is in the mind of your prospects. Uh, but it's you don't want to just think about in the mind of your prospects because those aren't the only people that matter. You also care about like what journalists who work in the industry think about your product and how they're going to write about it. Uh, you care if you get venture funding, you're going to care what investors think about your company. If you have an open source project, you care about what the community uh, thinks about your project. So uh, positioning is about creating the right assumptions and it, it comes down to how do you describe your product? Uh, what market are you targeting? So um, how how do you segment your market, which is how do you determine what are the characteristics of your ideal customers? And uh, that that's, oh, and then there's a last thing, which is like, what are the, the values, the, the unique value that you provide? And that, so that's what I help companies figure out, basically, is what's the best way to describe what our product is. Uh, that seems sort of basic, but a lot of founders actually find it really challenging. And uh, who, sh who should we market to? Who's going to find this most useful? Yeah, this is, we're, we're going to get into some of the neat, dirty behind the scenes work, which I, I often cringe even when I have to use these phrases, because one of the things that, that you do particularly well is really create a human connection through the use of words that ties technology to value and, and human value. And, and ultimately through human value, we get business value as well. Uh, and it's, we often forget that that takes a lot of work, right? It's the old, what's the Mark Twain thing, right? If I had a long, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. Uh, it, we, we, it's very easy for us to go on, you know, write about our story and, and, I've, I've often done that, right? Like as you're trying to give your elevator pitch, if it takes a 120 floor building to give your elevator pitch, then it's not an elevator pitch. You need to literally be able to, you know, sort of quickly tell, hey, you know, this is, this is a real problem that, that people have. You, you may have experienced it yourself. Uh, so yeah, actually what my company does is we, we solve that in a way that's, that's actually never been done before, which allows you, you know, to be able to do this and this and this. And then as a result, then this is actually now you can get on to doing better things. And it's like, it seems so fundamentally simple, but it's really difficult to do. And then on top of that, we then have to bring in, I'll say kind of like mechanized language around it. And even you used a word that makes me gnash my teeth and I use it all. I don't even use it myself because I've got an allergy is the word prospect. Cause I very much like, I know that it's a, it's a term, it's a sales term. We use it and I still fight it internally. I say like prospective customer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, because I, I know if I've, I've actually had folks that are really good technical sellers and they'll say, Hey, I was you know talking to a prospect the other day. And I was like, Oh, 
oh, that hurts just hearing because I'm now I know I'm a prospect versus like I'll say like, you know, you should say I was talking to somebody else who's in a similar function, in a similar role as you uh, over another company or like somebody else in the community. And I, I get them to kind of soften the language. But the truth is behind the scenes, we have to, you know, we talk about prospects and and value statements and positive business outcomes and, and all this stuff like this. But how did you get Funny. to do this, Emily? Like this is no one, no one thinks that this is a fun idea to take on because this is a lesson and an exercise in, in frustration building this stuff. Hmm. I'm not sure that's true that nobody thinks it's fun to take on. Um, oh, there we go. <laughs> I, I, I was just going to say that I was actually writing a blog post this morning and I found myself writing like buyer. No. And I deleted it. Prospect. <laughs> and I deleted it. And then, but it's it, it like, I, I do think, so I used to be a journalist and, um, aside and i'm also like a, I'm, I'm a language person I'm, i really i also speak a couple foreign languages so i i really think word choice is very important um and yeah to the point about prospect versus versus prospective customers versus buyers or whatever like ultimately there is a difference between saying your buyer and your prospect anyway um so it, it can be really hard to make sure that you're using the right the right words especially when some of them are kind of cringeworthy yeah, because we have to talk about your EB, your economic buyer, you know, your technical champion. And we like there is at least sort of common phrasing. I, I always just it always it hurts me when that leaks out. You know, it's kind of like when an internal email makes it to the outside world. You're like, like, we know how that happens behind the scene. But then it becomes like if you've ever watched a rather famous bit by Bill Hicks on on marketing and and he it's a fantastic thing to listen to, not if you're in marketing and are soft at heart because he he kind of rips it all apart. And the whole thing he's like, oh yeah, this is you're basically snakes and and demons in, in what you're doing. <laughs> but the truth is in technical marketing and in marketing in general, it is very much about creating a connection between you know people value that you can bring them what you can give back to them and ultimately you know run a sustainable organization and a business commercially through doing so and what's particularly interesting about your ability and your successes in doing it so far and in future which i'm sure there'll be a lot of is doing this in open source very much changes because it's much it's a different you know, there's a different commercial side. There's a different value side. So uh, I, I guess that's the real thing, right? Getting into messaging and positioning fantastically, it is enjoyable and it's neat and it's challenging. And then adding this like, but we're going to do it in open source projects. And like, most people be like, all right, I'm out because <laughs> this is a tough world to be in. Right. Well, so the first thing to acknowledge is that uh, most engineers, um, most developers, find themselves really allergic to the word marketing. I think for all of the reasons that you just mentioned that it it's sort of sounds slightly dirty and um, particularly if we're talking about open source, like um, open source is not about making money. So what, um, of course, I'll just put a caveat that that's not entirely true. I don't think that all open source is like it's not it, completely divorced from money. Yeah. Um, but the primary function of it is not to do it however in order to sustain it. I, I, I know where you're where you're at with that one. So yeah, I appreciate that you sort of laid that uh, that caveat there. 
Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, particularly with companies that I work with, they ha- they're they related often to an open source project, but they also have venture funding. They're also like their their end goal is to build a company, uh, not just to be, you know, technical hippies. <laughs> um, but so I think that that's one of the challenges when we talk about marketing. Um but positioning, so first of all, I, I should actually step back. Um, one of the misconceptions about positioning is actually that it's part of marketing. And it's really like, it's a higher level business function. So like if uh, if a prospect came to me and it was their head of marketing and they said, look, we really need help with positioning, I would say, great. Um, is the CEO on board? Are the founders on board? Are they going to be part of this discussion? And if that marketing person says, no, this is not a project I'm going to take on because it's going to fail. And um, because positioning is it, it has implications for your product roadmap. It has like profound implications for your sales strategy. You might end up changing your price point based on your positioning, because if you're going to sell something, um, let's just say you're going to sell something for financial services uh, it should be expensive. And if you have, if you're trying to sell something cheap and you're selling it to a market that expects things for them to be expensive, uh, that's a problem. So it, it has all of these implications throughout the business. So it's really not just marketing. Yeah. And it's, uh, and in fact, when you say positioning, it's not just like word positioning and it's, it's, it is truly full market positioning. And it goes, as you said, beyond just like the the thing that does the little type ahead on the website when you go to the homepage and you see a a little slider, like that's that's reflective of positioning, but that in itself is not positioning. Yes, that is exactly right. Um, I also have some people that'll like send me a website and they'll they're like, "Can you tell me if this company has great positioning?" And I'm like, "I, I don't know. I mean, you can tell." So if yes, you can usually tell by the website. If, but if the website, if if you don't think that the there's great positioning reflected on the website, that could be a website problem. It could be a copywriting problem. It's it could be a positioning problem, but you can't you can't really know for sure. Yeah, actually, there was somebody I spoke with uh, the other day, and it was he was telling me about sort of the story of his company. He's a you know single engineer with a with a co-founder and they're, they're doing really neat stuff. And so I took a look at the website cause he sends me the email address. And so we, we met just as a, through a friend, I was helping him out and uh, to uh, help him with a, a, a technical problem. And so I talked with him and, and I was like, Oh, actually tell me about what your, what your platform's doing. I'm actually very interested in, in what the problem is you're solving. And he said something for like in two minutes, he gave me this incredibly profound statement of like, you know how we have this problem that goes on. Like we want to make this not suck for people. So we took on this task because we realized there's a better way to do it. And he, he goes through this thing and I was like, Alan, you just totally nailed this. I went to your website, no idea that this is what you do, right? You can, you need to connect those two things together because the story you just told me is incredibly compelling. And it made me say, okay, well, how do you do that? Like it's, it did all the right things. And it was so funny that there can be this weird, like sometimes the market, the marketing of the message in the, in the website, like you said, can really be good. 
-hmm. but you know what's the churn rate what's the attach rate what's the growth rate like there's other things like you said about positioning is much more than just oh that's really neat i know what you guys do now <laughs> well that's sort of the fundamental though about positioning is um it's about making your prospects Oh, I'm using that word again. That's all right. Um, I know I'm, I'm going to make you <laughs> overthink that every time now. <laughs> uh, so it's about making everybody, uh, not even just prospects. So customers, your current customers, you also don't want them to be confused. So it's about reducing confusion. And part of the goal is uh, you want, you know, when somebody comes to your website, they, you want them to immediately understand what problem you're solving and how you solve it and is is your solution right for them or not. Uh, I you know you always remind people like you're you're not going to boil the ocean. You're a startup with a million dollars or ten million dollars or whatever. you're you're not gonna you're not gonna be Facebook tomorrow or next quarter. and you you need to focus on some sort of specific market. And so having somebody come to your website and say, oh, I understand what this is and it's not for me, that is also a good outcome right. because now you have not wasted, uh, you know, hours of your marketing and sales team's time on somebody who was never going to buy your your product. That's actually so, one, that's something that people don't even realize. It's, it's not as depositioning your your audience is the most important, one of the most important things that you can do. And and I forget that sometimes too. I'm like, you need to immediately. So when someone gets there, they're like, yep, really cool. Not for me. You know, I'm not going to waste this person's sales cycle time by calling them and saying, Hey, I'm curious how this, this may work to my use case or whatever. Tell me about the thing you do. And then you spend an hour and they go, yeah, it's not going to be a fit. <laughs> Yep. It's saving everybody time. You know, it's saving the prospect time. It's saving your sales team time. And so that that's a good outcome if somebody says, now nah, this isn't for me. But you want that to be clear as soon as possible in the, in the sales cycle or in, really in the marketing cycle. So it gives you the ability to, to focus a lot more. But it also increases the chances that those people that are a good fit are going to understand that immediately. And so then that, that makes them more likely to reach out. And so you get this, at the same time, you have those that are not a good fit um, leaving. That's great. Those that are a good fit, more likely to understand that. Now, this definitely doesn't come from, I think I'm going to be good at this. Like you, you've obviously got some, some road time or some, you know, some, you've got history that allowed you to be able to connect these things together. Like there's cer certain fundamentals of it that are actually based out of like cognitive psychology and behavior psychology and, and, and a lot of neat stuff there. But you generally can't, you know, go and read a bunch of that and then come forward and say, all right, perfect. I, I can nail the story for you. So Emily, how did you come to choose this as a, as a path for, for your own choice? Oh, that's a really good question. So, um, I, I never know where to start in my story, but I think I'm going to start uh, sort of way back when, which is, you know, I spent my 20s doing a bunch of random stuff um, and uh, including starting two companies that never had any any revenue. Like, I think just my mom knew that they existed 
And <laughs> um, and uh, then I went to journalism school and then I was a, a tech journalist for a while. And then I moved into content marketing. And uh, that was really sort of the catalyst for when I started to think a lot more about positioning because, oh, and I should mention um, that I was always self-employed. So I was always working as a consultant freelancer and uh, that's kind of just my personality. Um, but anyway. So you've always is... had skin in the game. Like you, you've, you've always chosen that I am responsible for the, the, the outcome here, which is uh, it's a brave thing to do right out of the gate. Well, you know, I think if somebody, when I was in college, when I was like 18, had had told me that I could have a career in sales, uh, I, I, it would have changed my life. But I, it didn't really even occur to me that like there are people that make a living selling stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, I enjoy the hustle of of like meeting new clients and rest, you know, the all, all of the things that are associated with with. Uh, being a consultant and not having a job, uh, I enjoy. And including not having a boss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, a lot of people, that I, I've, especially here, of course, I'm lucky enough. I talk to amazing folks like yourself all the time who've like walked these unique paths and on their own. And, and the, my favorite thing is almost all of them would describe themselves as unemployable because it's like, I am not going to, they're not going to look at the mission on the back of the wall behind the front desk and say like, this is for me. I'm like, I've, I've got my own mission. I got to complete. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say that I would never, ever take a job, but like, I would say that my circumstances would have to be pretty dire in order for that to, to happen. Um, what I would find but, even, even in doing so you would become, as we called, uh, I, I used to describe myself as an intrapreneur in that you create you that drive and that methodology is baked into you, and so even when you're in an internal team, you will you will very much go outside the lines as a founder of a function inside a company. So there's even if you were to go there, it would probably be a temporary stint until you you got back out again. True. Well, fingers crossed it doesn't come to that. That's even better. <laughs> even better. Yeah. Um. But actually, so the fact that I was uh, that I was working for a lot of different companies, and uh, I started to really focus on the the cloud native ecosystem, and and technology companies, and so the fact that I was working working as a, a marketing writer for these these companies is really relevant because first of all, marketing is often the first department that feels the pain of bad positioning. And second of all, when you're outside of a company working as an external consultant, you see it really well. Because I think what happens is when you're when you're working inside of the company, you can kind of you kind of start drinking the Kool-Aid and it's like everything kind of makes sense to you because you know, you're really like you're really immersed in everything and but when you're looking at it from outside, and you're trying to get some direction on this piece of marketing writing. And you're like, who, who are we writing this for? And they're like, well, you know, our audience is SREs and platform engineers and developers and also VPs of development. And you're like, <laughs> whoa, those people care about very different things. Like, how am I going to write this? And so uh, it, it actually got pretty frustrating because this was so prevalent that people were just 
not really capable of giving me clear direction, uh, which when it happened basically meant that my project was not going to be successful. And I knew that. So that's when I started to think, you know, I can see that this is a problem. Um, I tend to be actually a really big picture person. Uh, I think this is why I, I didn't do such a great job wh when I when I was employed in in my very early 20s. Um, I'm not super detail oriented. So um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Well, this is the, the interesting thing. And I actually heard a great interview the other day and it talked about the sort of the creative mind and the the, the process of of being a creative person. They said, and uh, the, the fellow said, unfortunately, he says, creative people tend to make a lot of money for other people and not for themselves until it's far too late for them to enjoy it. <laughs> you know, it's, mm -hmm. and, and it's, I've, I suffered the same sort of, challenge of you know every year it gets to my annual review and they're like hey you know it'd be great like i've got i'm a i work in a startup and and they give me a lot of autonomy and they're a fantastic team and so when it comes to annual review time it's not like when i worked at a big financial company they're like okay according to this you're in the nine box or the seven box they got all these crazy things and then <laughs> but it would be like every year I'd say, hey, look, it's the time of year where we say it would be great if you were better at project management and detail-oriented, long view, uh, you know, content. I'm like, I, I'm never going to be that. I'm like, just going to lay that out there right now. I'm never going to be good at this stuff, and I'm going to be fantastic at what I do. But they're like, we want to put you in the eight box and the nine. Like, I'm like, no, no, I don't want to be there. <laughs> you know, it actually I think makes me fit really well with this industry because a lot of engineers are detailed-oriented. Yeah, and so what they um, the the ability to step back is really what they're missing. And most of the founders that I work with, they're they're engineers, and they've now founded a company, and they're really good at like making sure their code is not missing a punctuation mark or something like that. And uh, I would suck at that. But, yeah, it, um, it is a beautiful thing of the merger of those styles because you have you have a technical you you understand the technical audience and sort of the buyer audience as well as the consumer audience, you know, or they as we say, you know, the users. Another mm, word I have, the, often cringe that we say, <laughs> but the users and the buyers. Yeah, but the it is a really good mix that like you want the technical founder to be a technical founder, not a big picture market maker like mm -hmm. you want them to be fantastic at what they do and you will be fantastic what you do to allow them to continue to you know build product and and think about what's next yeah and you know honestly a lot of the founders that i work with like they they're not just engineers they're very very good engineers and these are you know they're they're people that have actually uh, and then i'll go into a caveat sometimes that is also the challenge is that they're very, very good engineers. And so, and, and they've often worked at companies that are very tech forward. They're very, very far on maturity curves. And so it can be a big challenge. In fact, I think this is a big challenge, sort of the industry in general is uh, sort of connecting to the real world experience of a mediocre engineer who works at uh, a mediocre or works in, you know, a mediocre technology organization. And, you know, mediocre, we, we often use that word to mean like 
like terrible. Um, but I'm I'm more meaning in sort of an average term. Right. Like, truly like great. a median, a median on a curve, not a mediocre as in they're not really that good, which is yeah. Right. Exactly. I mean, and and the honest truth is like that's somewhere around the medium is is that's where most people are gonna fall. That's where most users are gonna fall. It's where most buyers are gonna fall, even if we're like, you know, directors of development or VPs or whatever. Not every one of those VPs is an is an amazing VP at his or her job, and not everyone is inside an organization that's an amazing technology organization, and that's okay. I'm I don't think there's a problem with that. It's just that that I think the the ecosystem and the the founders of these amazing startups need to sometimes need to do a better job at sort of stepping back and thinking, okay, where where is the market like? Where is the market actually at? Where where are the the people that I can help? Where are they? How do I meet them where they are? And how do I use terms that are are going to resonate with them? And what problems are they actually experiencing? Oh, uh, and then the, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, and then there's one other thing, which is like, what do they actually? Uh, perceive as being an alternative to my product. So that that's a big part of positioning is what are the competitive alternatives? And the common thing is you ask somebody, what are your competitors? And they will name another company. If you actually drill into it and say, what are the competitive alternatives? The competitive alternatives are doing nothing. Right. So yeah, it's the, it's sort of, a, and I, it, it hurts me to say it because I know it's, it's a, it's an easy answer, but it is true in that, you know, our biggest competitor is status quo. Uh, you oh. know, it's true. So too true, you know, in, in so many cases, it's, it seems like a, like a gimme if you say it, but like, no, that's most people struggle from just like, Hey, this is good enough. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, both it both for business buyers, but also for consumers. I mean, I was looking at cars last month, and um, if you ask a car company like, "What's your competitor?" they'll talk about some other car. I didn't buy a car. I'm not going to buy a car, and that's what, probably what like most of the people that ent enter their funnel, so to speak, are going to end up not buying a car. They're going to do nothing. Yeah, yeah. That's and when it comes to the the technical buyer. And the technical economic lead buyer, you know, uh, so like a CIO, CTO, somebody who's in an organization, they're uniquely challenging to market towards because they are generally, you know, technical. So they ask harder questions. Uh, you know, to use your car example, you're, more people are going to go to buy a car because they need to get somewhere and they kind of don't care what's inside the car. They just want it to be the right price. They've got a certain set of criteria. The ineffective alternatives are the bus, <laughs> not having a car. <laughs> you know, like there's, it's, but the buyer is most often not technical. And in fact, when we get into the technical marketing piece and, and technical comp, you know, positioning, you have the yep. worst case scenario of, super technical people. They're like, what does it do here? And, you know, it's so that whole thing of, I don't want to dwell on speeds and feeds, but we're going to dwell for 45 minutes on speeds and feeds, you know, and all these little, you know, knobs and, and, and dials on, on what it can do. 
Yeah. So to go back to the car example, that's actually really good. So um, when you're doing technical marketing, one of your biggest competitors is uh, build, build it yourself DIY. So in, instead of buying your thing, we're going to build a platform and ourselves. Um, if you're buying a car, like quite frankly, I do not think that one of your competitors is like, like I, I wasn't even thinking like, oh, well, you know, I'll just build a car myself. <laughs> that's right. And, and I don't think that that's like a, a real realistic uh, competitor for most people. Yeah, that... but it is in the technical marketing that that's a, a, a really big major competitive alternative. Yeah, and we we run into that problem too of uh, especially when you've got a really good engineering organization, and we it's the problem we call NIH or not invented here, right? When you go mm -hmm. and you pitch a product, then they're like, yeah, you know, they just like you can see them sort of squinting as they're listening to your discussion, and they look at the engineering team and said, "Can we do something pretty close to this ourselves?" And they're like, "Oh no, like that's that is a real unfortunate confidence in the ability to throw people at it." And I'm like, if you've not heard of the mythical man month, this is going to end poorly for you. <laughs> yep. And, you know, I, it's that's also the the user user buyer discussion, uh, because sometimes this like whatever it is that you're selling, like that looks like a really interesting problem to solve. And if you're if you're targeting the, the wrong level in an organization, uh, you you know, you're just going to be giving them an idea and they're going to think, gosh, I would rather spend the next six months working on replicating your product in internally than doing whatever it is that I'm that I'm doing. Um, that's usually when you're you're marketing too low, because most likely once you're once you're getting to the people that have more of like a more business metrics that they care about and they're they're managing people they do not want the people on their team building that platform that is not in their best interest but the people built that the the engineers themselves oh yeah that that's a big problem they they want to spend some time building that yeah well it's funny you can you often find out it's like going to family therapy when you're in these discussions with folks and i get i'm lucky to be very close to the customer experience all the time and it's like, I was a user. I literally sat in the desk as a systems architect for a couple of decades. So I know the pain directly. It's easier for me to relate it when I talk about product and 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 outcomes and, and what we get. And it's funny that you can get a lot of folks that are, you know, really strong technical champions and they have a genuine day-to-day -day problem that maybe their boss doesn't know about. And that gets uncovered like beautifully if in the right conversation because and you need that as to do proper positioning and selling and renewing because yeah. if you only give value to the user of the consumer of the product and they don't see the kpis being effective mm -hmm. affected at the top then they're gonna be like you know i don't i don't know that i'm getting value from this thing i just saw a renewal for and, and it's like you said positioning isn't just about prospects it's about your existing customers. You got to keep reminding them that either you've got yeah. value or we're even adding more value and more capabilities. And, and how do you relate those? Yeah. And, and, you know, part of positioning in some of the things that, that we work on narrowing down is who is the right buyer. So again, when you think of an engineering organization, it's not like homogenous. There's going to be the, the SRE teams. Oh, we like to talk about breaking down si silos. And in reality, there's still silos. 
in most places. So, you know, unless unless you're selling to like the CTO who's responsible for the whole thing, um, there's going to be silos. And and most of my clients are not going quite that high level. Yeah. And and this is the funny part is uh, as much as I see that silo slide on everybody's sales deck, guilty as charged. <laughs> We know the truth is that there's just no way to really break those things down. The reason why we had to start calling it like DevSecOps, they're like, why do you need to explicitly say Sec? I'm like, because no one invited security to the party uh, and it wasn't pervasive to the flow of, of code. And they're like, oh, okay. You know, and all of a sudden someone described the other day, they called it Biz DevSecOps. And like, we've officially figured it out that we forgot to include the business people in the discussion. <laughs> I have not heard that one yet and I love it. So now eventually it's going to become this like biz dev sec, you know, like there'll be like Cust three customer other- success. <laughs> yeah, that's right. CX ops. Oh, but so yeah. in practice now, this is just like you're, you talked about positioning. It's important to know who not to position for and to deposition the mm -hmm. the, the the unimportant or the 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 not valuable you know prospect. In your experience of doing this stuff, most of your success in knowing what to do probably comes from seeing a lot of what not to do and and seeing metrics that showed that that was the case. So I'm curious, Emily, when did you start to tie in? How do I measure the effectiveness of positioning and marketing and like where this comes together? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question of how it's measured. So the first thing, um, uh, yeah, positioning is interesting to measure. So you're not going to like, you're not going to improve your positioning and then tomorrow you're going to fix these things. So often we're talking about like a fairly fundamental shift in how the company is talking about itself and operating. So we're not going to see like a change tomorrow, but there are, um, there are some things that will change immediately. And then there are metrics that you should see improvement on if in fact your, your positioning has been improved. So the, the first result is, this is a human one, is that I find uh, founders have more confidence because often the pain point that they come to me with is that they don't know how to talk about their, their company. They don't know how to talk about their product and it's frustrating and they, and they, they feel like their, their sales calls are kind of, they feel like they're not going great. Basically. They feel like the first 15 minutes, the prospects are confused and, and it's really frustrating. So that does change immediately is there's there's often a shift in in sort of how the confident the founder or founders feels in in sort of having a discussion or or describing. Um, so after positioning, you should be able to describe your your product in like less than a sentence, like five words. Yeah. And uh, so that's the first change. And then this, the second thing, this gets into like, what are the signs that your positioning kind of sucks? And then, then obviously if your positioning is better, it's going to, you're going to see improvement on those metrics. So, uh, one of them is high churn at like everywhere on the funnel. 
And uh, so if you have uh, a lot of people coming to your website, but like every every part of your funnel, there's it's just incredibly leaky, that's probably a positioning issue. If you have a lot of churn in your customers, that's probably a sign that the customers maybe thought they were going to get something else. And then they signed up and they were like, oh, whoops, this is not actually what I was expecting. I don't actually need it. That's a positioning problem, right? You yeah. want people to like actually get the thing that they thought they were getting. So um, basically, you should be improving your your conversion rates at, at all, all spaces on the funnel, the marketing sales funnel. Uh, you should see lower customer churn. And um, those are what I would say. I mean, and ultimately, right, those are going to lead to better revenue numbers, et cetera. Uh, but those those are the, the really bottom line uh, positioning metrics that I would look at. And here we have like the sort of problem is that those are marketing met metrics. And that's why people think that positioning is a marketing problem. Right. And uh, but right, if you have a, a high customer churn, maybe your product sucks. <laughs> Um, yeah. Also, it, it could be a it, problem. <laughs> yeah. Or the, the, it sucks for the people who actually end up buying it. And so it, it really isn't just marketing. It's really high level. Uh, another thing that I also see with the, um, when positioning projects are really successful is that it's easier to get, um, it's the PR is easier. It's easier to get in the press because the, you know, whether you're doing PR yourself, whether you've hired a team, it's it's easier for them to communicate with other people in the industry about what you do, and right. and that that makes it easier for them to write about. Yeah, and the the challenges as people as humans, especially in technical, you know, we've got a lot of strong technical founders. Like you said, it's a, it's a tough. It's not in their brain to like they're not built to be able to tell the story in that's why we always talk about jobs and wozniak and people get really irked and angry like jobs wasn't technical you know it's just a marketing guy i'm like well he, he, he was technical he didn't necessarily write the code but you know he had the ability to take the technology and relate the story and and he even attributes he says the ability to do so wasn't just from fantastic storytelling which we, he was particularly good at but he has this book, and I actually have it on my shelf. I had to hunt it down around the world. It's called The Business Value of Computers. And it was effectively an accounting guide into how to actually measure the effectiveness of using computer systems in large organizations. This is like mainframe type of, of adoption. But he said, if you can't show them that there's metrics that, they're gonna, that are going to matter to them and then a human side to that story then you know no technology is going to save you from a bad sales problem which is which and as technology founders like i said so you come in there i know a lot of amazing technologists who probably wouldn't pass a turing test there's nothing wrong with them having an incredible amount of skill so let's put somebody beside them who gets why they're doing it and what they're doing it and then can make that a, a storytelling exercise which then ultimately becomes based on the foundation of positioning like you said, it's <clears throat> it has to come from there. This is the the core, and then everything should always go back to like, ah, okay, here's your value drivers or whatever you call them. But mm -hmm. like it's it's in in the founders. There's a great book actually called The Founder's Mentality, 
and and it's a, a it's actually by Bain and Company. They're a, a, a marketing and advisory firm in uh, in Boston. Not to be confused with Bain Capital, which is always is always funny because I my company as well is one of a, one of the Bain Capital companies. But it's very very cool that they talk about this idea of like the founder can get frustrated because they see the selling position moving away from what the product was meant to do, and then they lose track of it, and then the numbers start to go. Mm-hmm. And what's worse is that it doesn't get felt like you said. You and you change your positioning and you do it right today you don't notice it tomorrow uh, the metrics are going to play out over time yeah and it, it can be pretty quick um and then the other thing so there's there's a, a couple comments here um so first of all it can be pretty quick i mean if you actually implement your positioning it, it, you can feel it pretty quickly but it's not going to be tomorrow and uh the the other thing is that almost always the the best positioning for your product isn't necessarily be the positioning that you had in mind when you created it. And that uh, that is why actually, so that's part of why founders have to be involved when we do a positioning exercise, because it can involve almost like shifting, shifting the identity of the company. And if it's... It, that can mean shifting the identity of, of the founders. And uh, so it, that's the most challenging part, actually, of of positioning is is like having everybody sort of let go of what they thought they were creating and then figuring out like, well, what is the thing that actually is here that was created and how do we highlight its strengths in a way that 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 are that's going to you know get customers really excited about it? And positioning, it can change over time. It's not something you want to change like every month, but you should sort of check in to check in with it like once a year, once every six months to see if it's still working. And, uh, you know, one of the the other thing is like if there's a big market shift. So, for example, with COVID-19, there was and everyone's working from home. Uh, that can present certain challenges to to organizations, and maybe you know maybe you you want to reposition your thing. Some maybe the competitive alternative to your product is uh, walking over to your colleague's office. Well, that's not an option anymore, and so you need to be able to to sort of capture that. Oh, there's a last thing I wanted to say, which is that actually Apple is a really good example of good positioning. And there's a lot, I, I can think of a, a lot of ways. Um, first of all, when in the early days of Apple computers, it was not a general purpose personal computer. It was for creatives. Right. And this, and and that ultimately is how Apple computers became like the, the cool version, right? Like if you were an accountant, you got a, um, you, you didn't get an Apple. Uh, if you were like a graphic designer, you definitely got an Apple computer. And and that had ramifications, obviously, not just for their marketing, but but it was their product was also different. And it had to focus on different types of functionality. And then uh, when the iPhone launched, so think about the name of iPhone. An iPhone is actually not really a phone. Like it does have phone functionality, but that's like a tiny little bit of of its functionality. Yeah. But at the time that it launched, that 
like that was what the company and and Steve Jobs decided to accentuate because that was something that that people associated with like putting in their pocket and taking places. Imagine if they had called it like the eye pocket computer or something like That's that. Right. That's <laughs> crappy. Yeah. And and in fact, actually, if you watch the iPhone launch video, like Jobs does all this like talking about voicemail and like call forward, like all this stuff that's phone functionality that like nobody uses now and probably nobody even used then, but it reinforced this position of this is a phone. And so it makes sense. It makes sense as a product to, to me. Yeah. It becomes the, what's the, what's the comparative that will make sense mm -hmm. to people. Then they can, they can map it over. And this, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. The words in, in that we use are interesting, and I get lessons in this all the time. So, you know, the founder of, of my organization, he used to, he's like super technical. He's like really, really able to do incredible things, but knows the business, you know, third time founder, like really, really got a good sense of, of how things go. And people kind of forget how strong he is at the business side of it. And so you get people and they'll like, he's like, this is what we do. And this is, you know, you, you go through the whole thing. But in the end, we as humans try and find differentiating words to make it easier to explain or sell. And so people always say like, we solve this problem in a unique way. And he, he stops and he goes, and he asks us, and it was my favorite thing to hear. He goes, can I ask you, were, did you have a lot of friends when you were a kid? And so and they'll be like, yeah, well, yeah, I was I was fairly fairly popular, whatever. Like, okay, and so in high school, you know, throughout changes in your life, yeah, yeah, okay. Would were you unique? And you're like, what do you mean? He goes, exactly. You were not popular because you were unique. You were not smarter because you were unique. Unique isn't a word that you want to use to describe your problem as a differentiating feature. He's <laughs> like. It may be unique in the way that it solves the problem, but the product is not unique. Like, don't use words like that. <laughs> it's just because they're going to pull you down a trap and they'll say, everybody says they're unique. Everyone says they're the first to market. Everyone says they're industry leading. It's like, these are these are not important words when it comes to what we're actually doing. Yeah. So why do we get caught up in those lovely words, Emily? <laughs> because they sound fun. Like, it's easy to go to. Yeah, I, I, I think that you're right. You know, it's part of it is that we, we want to be unique. And I think people like to think of their product as being totally unique. And it is. It's usually there's there's not something that is exactly like that thing anywhere. Um, of course, nobody sol cares if you solve their problem in a unique way. They just want it solved. They don't care how you do it. That's right. And um, if you solve it in a way that's totally non-unique, it's still solved. Um, and the, the other thing I was going to say, actually, is that this is relevant to this discussion of developer marketing because um, developers, engineers, they tend to have a, a lower bullshit tolerance than a lot of other markets. And so I think you're probably more likely to get that pushback when you're like, we have a, you know, we have a, a unique way of solving this problem. I think they're, that's going to sound like bullshit. That's going to pop out as bullshit for. I can already uh, hear the person at the table going like, 
<laughs> you know, like make <laughs> like sure it's unique. Whatever. I mean, <laughs> then they're gonna they're gonna look through the like eight million open source projects on GitHub, and they're gonna say like, no, no, I found this other this project that has like two contributors, and it's actually exactly the same as yours. So um, even patented is a tough one because like, well, it is a, a very differentiating thing, a very specific thing about the way you solve the problem. Like just saying patented, I've even found that in competitive, it's like, like use this, like we have 17 patents in, in as a competitive alternative. I'm like, you know, the company you're competing with has 2000 patents. They were, they've like, that is not a, that's not a business differentiator. You know, it shows your longevity. It shows your uniqueness in a way, but like, IBM has more patents and what's the old joke, right? Like how many, the most patents in the world are for the mousetrap. Go to the hardware store. Your mousetrap is a piece of wood with a spring on it. There's, I don't care how many patents there are. It's, I just need to catch a bloody mouse. <laughs> you know, and sometimes like, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind that you are ultimately selling an outcome. You're, you're solving the problem. And, you know, if you, if you, get a taxi and you you want to go to your house from you know your work so it's a route that you you go all the time you, you get a taxi and the taxi driver says hey look i'm going to take you a totally unique way to get to your house you're <laughs> going to be like whoa that does not sound good exactly now the other thing that's important in what you've described in like positioning and and it, it ultimately is, is a question for you you know it's choosing your market attacking a niche that you know you can be effective in and, and you know how to market towards you as well have you know mm -hmm. really lived strongly in a niche of of kubernetes in this cloud native marketplace which is going to become huge you know i mean it already is huge but what drew you to how that is a an effective place for you to be able to market towards and position towards yeah, this is a great question. Also, because I wanted to talk a little bit about how uh, it's not just products that are positioned. And it's not even just consultants who are positioned. It's even if you have a job, uh, you it's, it's still a good idea to be known for something and to be a specialist in something. And uh, even if you are a developer, right, maybe you're a spe specialist in a particular uh, language, maybe you're a spe specialist in a particular type of business. Um, so I think that it's really important for, for everybody to, to try to specialize to a certain extent. And, uh, when I think about what, what a consultant or even somebody who's going to be an employee should, should think, should think about as they're positioning, uh, themselves is where the overlap is between things that they are good at uh, things that they enjoy <laughs> and um, things that people are willing to pay money for. And the, the same goes with ind industry, right? You could apply that to what you do uh, or you could apply it to the, the industry that you're going to work in. And uh, for me, uh, obviously, like I have tons of interests and um, either the, being a positioning consultant is not the only thing that, that I think I'm pretty good at. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, but there's this, this sort of overlap here where working in this industry and it helps that I started, obviously I started as a marketing writer in this industry. Um, there's sort of an overlap of people that actually need this and are willing to pay money for it and that I'm, that I'm good at it. 
In terms of why, uh, I think uh, I'll go back to the discussion of not being very detail oriented. So I was actually interested in um, like web development and I played around with Drupal for a while in my in my 20s. I don't know if you know Drupal, but it's like I, WordPress. I spent a little time in that. It was it was the the it was the beta to WordPress's VHS. It was technically better, but unfortunately not marketed well enough to to make a big landing. <laughs> I actually don't think that's true. I think Drupal is ah. one of the most successful open source projects out there. And Acquia there that was that was founded by the open source maintainer. Um, it was sold, I don't know to who, but for like $2 billion, like a totally insane amount of money. Um, so actually Drupal is an open source, open source success story in a lot of ways, because um, also has a huge community. Anyway, my point being, um, it's not like an entry-level web development uh, platform. It's quite complicated. It's yeah. very, it's very powerful, uh, but it's uh, you really need to be like getting your hands in the code in order to be successful with it. So I like, you know, I taught myself how to do some stuff, but I'm ultimately like I'd I'd miss a period somewhere and it wouldn't work, and I just get really frustrated and. Um, yeah, that that it just wasn't for me. I, I couldn't deal with like I missed, you know, I missed a piece of punctuation and my work is a total failure. Um, and I think uh, but I, I sort of remained interested in this this sort of the technology field in general and, and what we can do with with software. And um, and then I think there's like there's a little bit of a cultural fit, even if I'm not I'm not the detail oriented engineer. I think there's a there's a cultural fit between the um, sort of like it's really hard for me to put my finger on what the cultural fit is. Um, let me think about this for a minute. I think I just I feel like it's really easy for me to empathize with the the sort of developer problem or the developer personality of like liking to work alone, consultant freelancer. Um, being, you know, really interested in like finishing projects, being a little bit type A. And uh, so I think that there was that as well, sort of being interested in the technology and then just feeling like like it's a cultural fit. Um, yeah, that like when I went to KubeCon, there was KubeCon and then there was like an accounting conference that was in the same location. And you just like, you looked at all the accountants and I was like, whoa, those are not my people. I do not feel comfortable <laughs> there. It's so funny that when I've I've always enjoyed when you go to especially a conference center and there's like multiple things and you know like you you know we're sitting here and we're making nerd jokes about technology and you know in the room next door they're like so this idiot filled out a T1029 instead of a T4228 <laughs> like holy moly where did this guy from Mars and like and totally meaningful hilarious anecdotal humor over there but it's like every every industry, every thing has a community and has its own nuances and isms about it. But, uh, but actually, it, I, I want to pull on the, the Drupal stream that, you know, you hit something really neat. So my perception in general awareness is that WordPress has been, I'll say, most known to be successful relative to Drupal. And it becomes from two factors. One, I didn't track the growth or ultimately the, the the trajectory of Drupal. I knew about it, but because I go everywhere and I see WordPress, so I have a perceived understanding that it is more successful, even though it may not be. And this, I bump into in Kubernetes folks all the time. They're like, this is like, Kubernetes is incredible. It's like winning the container war. And so that's, 
well, it, how big is that war, right? You know, relative to virtualization and cloud and, and, and everything else. So how, how do you deal with that situation when someone says like, no, like this is the, the metric that matters to me, or this is my opinion of a metric. And you're like, well, we actually have to look at the real metric that matters. I mean, ultimately, like you do get to decide. So if you're the CEO of a company and you decide that X metrics matters to you, I mean, maybe that's the most important metric. I mean, maybe I don't agree with it. Maybe your investors don't agree with it. Yeah. But uh, that that is one of one of the advantages of being CEO is you, you get to focus on the metrics that, that you think matter to you. And does it, you know, some some companies might get really hung up on like we have the biggest number of users and is or github stars oh. or, or we, we have github stars and like those github stars they're free so um you know do i think that a company should probably have like some hard dollars as a as a metric yeah definitely but um if if you think you know if you are the ceo and you're getting really hung up on some other metric like that's okay i you know i think the thing that that people should take out of this <laughs> this discussion about wordpress and drupal is that just because you are not necessarily a household name or you're not like uh, you know a household name <laughs> for technologists, uh, doesn't mean that you don't have a, a successful company, that you can have a very successful company, you can, uh, you could go public, you could, uh, you know, have a, a giant exit, um, or you could just run your very successful company. You can make tons of money. And people could think, oh, Drupal is just, you know, it's a a failed competitor to WordPress. Yeah. And ultimately like it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Like maybe you were never in the a position where a Drupal where Drupal made sense. And so you might think that. Um this is why I started using Drupal because I erroneously thought it would be a good idea for for just a random person setting up a website. It's not. WordPress is the best option for that. Right. Um if you have a really complicated website, that's where Drupal is appropriate. And so that's why you see like, like university websites are like big organizations, like the US government websites, places like that. Those are the ones that use Drupal. And so, um, and they, you know, they have like all this super complex functionality. But that means ultimately that they don't become a household name because they are only, they have a relatively, <laughs> they have a niche but it's huge, right? It can still let them be acquired for $2 billion. I think yeah. it was $2 billion. I might be wrong about that. It was huge. Yeah. But it's, and it's, it's interesting too. Yeah. Like you, we, I see this with positioning and in, in marketing as well. It's like the careful thing of, you know, what is it? If you say it's a, for creating websites, you know, like you're mm -hmm. going to have a real tough road. You know, if you say it's it's an enterprise grade CMS based on the most widely adopted and and broad open source ecosystem, be like, oh, okay, cool. So a legitimate CMS. Now I know it's a different use case, and they start to then map the use cases in their mind of like, oh, versus yeah, I want to go set up a, I don't want to go to Wix and set up my website. You know, I'll, I'll let WordPress looks like it may work for me. Okay, cool. Yeah. 
Yeah, Drupal is not the thing that you just like set up on Bluehost and start your personal blog on. It's yeah. not the thing. Um, but yeah, for the the more complex setups, it, it is. And uh, so in the startups that I often work there, they also get really hung up on this. And then you ask like, so how many how many customers do you want to sign this quarter? And they're like five. And you're <laughs> like, so five. Like that's not very many. I mean, you don't have to go after a huge market in order to to sign five. Yeah, customers. this is not time to be buying mailing lists. You've you've got a fairly niche area. What's the the flow is going to be much different, right? And you'll end up being much more likely to hit that five if you're going after a market that only has five hundred people in it because yeah. you can speak directly to them and they're going to listen. Whereas if you know you're going after like a five million people i mean how, how do you even like know you don't you're you're not people are going to ignore you that's that's when they think that you're a spammer uh but if you <laughs> speak directly to their their needs and you know like sres and financial services institutions like you oh okay yeah that's me now this will be interesting too because you've got a a good background and you 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 came from tech journalism and and you've you've obviously got some really good strength and you're a fantastic writer by the way i i've i i read a disturbing amount of your content in preparation for our discussion and and listening to a lot of your podcasts so i had the easiest job of coming into this hour <laughs> i was like emily's gonna be able to run on anything this is fantastic um but i'm curious on your thought on what the role is of journalism you know, literally today, uh, relative to when you were in it versus like, it was very different in like PR went to certain, you know, key journals. And then you got other things. Now it's, I, I just find it so different. I, I'm curious as somebody who lived on the inside, what's your sense of the, the place of tech journalism today? Right. Oh, I was about journalism in general. I was going to say I'm super cynical. <laughs> um, as but, most most journalists probably are <laughs> yeah um but i'm actually less cynical about tech journalism so um i, I actually have two degrees in journalism one it from columbia and the other one from a university in france and uh journalism is approached very differently in europe um because uh i'm talking about sort of general interest journalism yeah, yeah. uh because in general um in the U.S., journalism journalists are encouraged to like claim to be totally neutral on everything, which which I happen to think is bogus because we're all human beings and we all have opinions. Yeah. Um, in Europe, that is not how journalists operate. It's not how news organizations operate. So you'd have like a newspaper, and this is the newspaper of the left, or this is the newspaper of the Catholic Church, and they. They don't pretend that they're totally neutral. Right. So this relates to tech journalism because I think my my less cynicalness about tech journalism is that in general, I think tech journalists are more like that. So they're more they're a little bit more open about uh, you know where we take money from these companies, for example. Um, these are our advertisers. It's it's very it's very clear. And uh, I think um, what I do want to say about about tech journalism in general, and I'm I'm not actually totally out of tech journalism. So I write for the news stack, and I do so in a 
in a, in a journalist capacity. Right. And one of the reasons that I do is because it uh, I, I learn so much. And I think the biggest misunderstanding among founders about tech journalism is that the journalists who cover technology and who who cover uh, particularly like open source, cloud native stuff like that, they are really knowledgeable and they understand the ecosystem. Honestly, I, I think that they understand it better than anybody else, because this is their their job is to talk to people from everywhere, to talk to end users, to talk to you know all the different vendors, to talk to the the super big guys, to talk to the super little guys, to talk to investors. So they are they are really knowledgeable. And uh, yeah, speaking of like the the no bullshit theme, um, journalists also tend to be like pretty no bullshit. But definitely, when you talk to a tech journalist, like they they're able to spot the bullshit <laughs> yeah. and, like really easily. And uh, the not just they might not spot like if you if there's like something in your technology that doesn't work, like they're not generally engineers themselves. They, they won't get that. But if there's something about your business or your messaging that doesn't make sense, they will definitely pick up on that. I've as somebody who's had to do the the dance of, you know, going into PR and 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 like going out and doing launches and, and interviews. It's so funny because, yeah, I've and uh, one fellow I always enjoyed uh, chatting with and it was painful every time. Simon Sharwood, he worked for the Register or he wrote for the Register. He, he, I think he's independent as well. And yeah, I remember going to him one time and we had changed the version number of the product. And it was like just a, it's like a fairly small thing, but it went from like five, nine to six dot zero. And you know, he says, so why is the 6.0? And I didn't really know the right way to tell him because five, we ran out of numbers. And like, this was, <laughs> being like, <laughs> I'm like, I knew the implication of a major number change. And I was like, oh, Simon, you're going to make me say this stuff that like, it just happened that we ran out of, we couldn't be 5. Dot. And my engineering team were like, We'll make it 5.10. I'm like, you know, that's 5.1, right? Like 5.10. It's 5. <laughs> it's not 5.10. There's no 5.10. <laughs> but that was the, you know, Simon just said, he's he's like, I'm I want to get right to this. What matters? Why is this a dot zero? And I was like, ah, cool. You know, so he picked up that as a customer, they're gonna see, like, oh, this is a major release. This is gonna have a significant change. Tell me why. And and it was neat. And and Alex and the team from the news tech, I've been a huge fan of that, of the whole organization from the start. So it was like a glory day when I went to, I presented on Kubernetes at the OpenStack conference in Boston. And uh, and there was a fellow just like chuckling away in the front is giving during my presentation. I was like, all right, I feel like I'm doing good, like I'm engaging the audience. And then I saw the ad, the article the next day in the news stack and I was in there. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I feel like a hero that I made the news stack. But Alex has done a fantastic job of going from purely independent writers talking about technology in an ecosystem that he and his team cared about to being able to cross the chasm to being commercially viable, but maintaining mm -hmm. journalistic, you know, integrity. So that's, it's very clear this is a sponsored post, but mm -hmm. maintains that very good content in a sponsored post. He doesn't let it become a commercial. And and I think that's where, like you said, there's a no BS factor of like, I'm not just going to let you come in and say, 
you know what would make this drink better if it was built by this company you know on this technology like there's no room for that and 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 alex and his and the new stack are a great example of folks that make sure they keep that nice hard line yeah definitely and and you're right on i think you know tech journalists they and this is where positioning comes in i mean they you really want to like tell them what the value is like why does this matter and um it's you know unfortunately it's a thing that i think a lot of companies get wrong um because they they'll send you know an email we're, we're releasing a new version and it's version you know 6.1.3.5 and it's i'm like uh, i don't care <laughs> well, <and laughs> tell me why i should care and the fun part is, of course, because you have to parse out an hour conversation or a 20-minute conversation and then get it to a few meaningful bites that matter. And, and I remembered also, it's fun, Beth Pariso, she's also a great writer. And and I, I talked with her for like an hour on Kubernetes stuff. And we go through this whole thing. And at the end, the quote that comes in the article was like, Kubernetes on virtual machines is like a gateway drug to Kubernetes on bare metal. I, like You say it almost as a throwaway, but you got to remember when the microphones are on, everything's live and everything's on the record. And it was, it was fun. Like we, we, I, I, I said it for a reason. It was, it wasn't meant to be like, I hope she doesn't write this, but every once in a while I'll say something. And then my, my PR team, they'll be, you'd see their eyes go, their eyes widen up and you're like, uh Oh, <laughs> did I just say something that like, hopefully they don't catch that quote in there. But. Well, in journalism school, when I took uh, classes in radio, they would say like you never turn off your mic you would say like oh, okay we're done you'd like take off your headphones but you would keep your mic on because <laughs> <laughs> people would always say like the the interesting or sometimes incriminating thing when they erroneously assume that your mic was your recorder was not running yeah, well, it, I tell you, that's an. I've always got an incredible respect for the true art of journalism, you know, and and, and in that thing of like, yeah, are we off the record? And and it's the whole like when I read more and like like delved into how that works and the idea of deep background and and how it's like, there's so much to real journalism that unfortunately mm -hmm. is is just shaded by what we call media. And, mm -hmm. and that it's really been broken, but the the real true journalist, you know, the journalists out there and the principles and practice of it are are fantastic and so necessary. But, you know, the world has kind of shifted in a weird way of, you know, it becomes, you know, see the 23 things that his gym trainer would, you know, doesn't want you to hear about ab exercises or whatever. Like it becomes these weird outbrain articles that are on mainstream mm -hmm. media sites and it gets really lost in, in the power and importance of that journalism. And I think um, po possibly an, another reason I'm so interested in positioning actually is that uh, journalists specialize. And uh, this, uh, to an extent that, for example, developers generally don't like develop developers, I think often make the mistake of thinking, I I'm a developer and I, I write software and I could work at any company and doesn't matter what industry and whatever. Um, so journalists almost always specialize in something and uh, you want this because their job is to explain um, to know what's important and what isn't and to, to really understand uh, you know a particular subject so um, yeah so I, I've always thought that it's really important to to really be a specialist in in something and and that it applies to products too yeah and it's and it's funny if you look at it 
I mean, it's positioning. It's positioning it in every way, right? It, you it know, are you, are you going to write for Le Journal or Le Monde? You know, like which is the one you, you very distinct audiences, mm -hmm. very specific demographics. If you're not aware, and then same as developer, like sure you can be a you know a, a journey person developer who can do write fantastic code and 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 do all that stuff. But if you're if you want to be specialized, if you want to really exceed. It's about knowing how to map it to business requirements, how to relate it, how to engage with customers as you're building features and exploring stuff and user experience. There is much more yeah. that requires that knowing your customer and, and, you know, it's effectively positioning of everything. Yep, exactly. Well, this is, I could talk to you all day, Emily. This has been fantastic. And and I want to thank you very much. Uh, and for folks that do want to connect with you through various means, of course, I'll have the link to your website. You can go to emilyomir.com. Uh, and what's the best way if they want to do engage with you on, on social media? And, and also, plus, go check out Emily's uh, podcast and and your blog. Uh, you know, I said, great writer. If you just, if you search for Emily Omir, there's a wealth of content that comes up on Google because you're a very prolific uh, creator and it's, it shows in, in how well you approach this, your, everything you do. Yep. So let's see. So my podcast is called the business of cloud native. And uh, the, the goal is to sort of interrogate why companies use cloud native technology, what end users say, what people in the ecosystem say, et cetera. And uh, you can go to uh, thebusinessofcloudnative.com. It'll actually redirect you to my website, but it's if you have trouble spelling my last name. <laughs> and uh, also uh, my blog, Positioning Open Source, uh, you can go to positioningopensource.com. That will send you in the right direction. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. And uh, in, unless you send me a, like a, a spammy connection request, I will probably accept it. And uh, so, yeah, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, one of my goals for this year is to set up and be active on Twitter. I think I have an account, but I am not sure. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, my my LinkedIn? I, I always I always enjoy when somebody because I have an open policy. I accept people on LinkedIn because I also. I use it as a broadcast channel, right? Like, so a lot of stuff goes out in there. So I'm like, you feel bad. I'm like, hey, by the way, I'm accepting your connection, but you just became my audience. <laughs> and, but, you know, somebody, you'll get that inbound. And I just look at the, like the title or, you know, what the company is. I'm like, oh, this, I know what's coming. You hit accept. Mm -hmm. And then like nine minutes later, you know, hey, thanks for connecting. You know, one of the challenges that people face is being able to write good uh, whiteboard videos on their product. And we solved that problem. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'm going to make a whiteboard video to reply to these people on how to do better prospecting. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people make the, the, a lot of the spammy types on, I think they make the assumption that I like work inside a company. And so they'll talk to me about like, managing my team or something <laughs> yes, that I'm like, dude, this is, this is not, this is actually not a problem that I have. As an expert operating cloud native environments, you clearly yes. lie. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it, you, I know you probably get this thing. If you've ever seen the movie boiler room, uh, it's, uh, it's, a one of the scenes, this fellow's like this crazy, you know, aggressive salesperson. He learns these techniques and someone calls from the New York times like, Oh, can I, uh, would you like a, a subscription to the New York Times. 
And he's like, no, thanks. I'm, I'm good. I get the post, whatever. And, and they're like, okay, thank you for your day. And he goes, what, that's it? And, and he then goes for like 20 minutes, like schooling them. Like you, you got to go for the clothes, like ask for their business. You got to do this, like entice them. What do they really want? Do you want the post? Do you want this? Do you, what do you, do you want to light up your day? And he's like, and the guy gets all fired up. He goes, excellent. He goes, so would you like a subscription? He goes, nope. <laughs> but when someone pitches you, you almost want to reply like, okay, do I need to coach you how to do this? Like I, <laughs> we can, you can do better. <laughs> I'm disappointed. Yeah. So to go on a personal tangent, I'm uh, getting certified to be a foster parent and oh, wow. um, the, as like a marketer <laughs> or I guess I'm not really a marketer anymore, but anyway, uh, the, there's this like, it's a bazillion step process, but I'm always like, Oh, you guys need to work on your funnel. No, no <laughs> wonder you have no foster parents. Like, Oh my God. It um, is. It's really wild. And, and, and thank you for doing that. That's a really noble thing. You know, it's something that we, it's a, it's not often understood, uh, the impact it can have and, and how difficult it is to start the process. You know, people just think like, oh, you just you know, go sign a form and you do it like, no, this is, it's not an easy thing. There's no license to have kids. In fact, it's, it, it happens far more accidentally than it does on purpose. And then when you want to go out and, and specifically, you know, bring a, bring a child into a family, you know, it's, it's not an easy process for many good reasons, of course, but it's at the same time, you're, you're like, but can I not shorten the cycle on this here? I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a qualified lead. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I do. I, that's exactly what I want to say. Like, Hey, I'm a qualified lead. Like let's, uh, let's, let's move, move through this process a little bit. No, exactly. in, in all seriousness, it is, it, it is quite a process. So they're coming to my house next week. Well, well, good luck and uh, on that, and I, I hope it goes as smoothly as it can go. Uh, I've got a few friends that also uh, foster, and and it's uh, yeah, not not a simple process, which shows you know the intent and how strong it is that you know you do have to go out of your way to make this happen. So it'll you know the results will show and in, in what it is. But yeah, here here you go. He was like, okay, look, I'm a qualified lead. You've got access to the EB. I'm your technical champion. I got <laughs> yeah, everything. Exactly. You know. <laughs> I, I am the decision maker. Exactly. <laughs> we know the required capabilities. We know the ineffective alternatives. We've got it all right here. <laughs> Funnel making for fosters. It's uh, it's something we need. But I, I I hope that people really do learn that there's so much that's important in what you do and and what we all can do to just understand why this stuff works and and it happens at many layers in in life and business. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. This was a great discussion. Yeah, thanks, Emily, very much. And uh, shout out again to Chris over at Miss.io for putting us together. Big shout out to Alex and the new stack and all the folks uh, over there who I'm a, a longtime fan of, of their content. And yeah, like I said, people can go just do a quick search for Emily O'Meer. You'll see the new stack pop up and uh, do check it out as well as your blog. Well, thank you.